Hi, I'm Debbie Jerk-Jadis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about... We're having trouble with the music here. Hello and welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Jerk-Jadis. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today in America Can We Talk, we're going to talk about the Mar-a-Lago raid, what is coming next. We have Raymond Ibrahim joining me, author and public speaker specializing in the Middle East and Islam, has a new book out. Liz Cheney's impending defeat and future and the Pfizer vax ineffective and killing babies. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. On America Can We Talk, I talk about election integrity, border security, healthcare freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgianis. Obviously, the news uh, is just filled with stories about Mar-a-Lago and the raid the FBI conducted there on August 8th and the repercussions of that. I'm going to hit a few top points, and we will, of course, be covering this uh, for weeks to come. But I want to tell you something very serious about it. In my opinion, there is now exactly zero chance that the DOJ will not indict Donald Trump. Or put the other way, there is an indictment coming against Donald Trump. And the reason I say that is... They cannot take this raid as far as they've gone. They have actually, in an unprecedented manner, raided and executed a subpoena on a former president and with a president who was completely complying with the uh, request for archives, reviewing documents, allowing them to come into Mar-a-Lago. This is unprecedented, and I think they simply can't let it go at this point. They cannot. So he's going to be indicted. Number one, possible charges are things like tied to January 6th, uh, obstruction of an official proceeding, or maybe even conspiracy, working with other people who enter the Capitol on January 6th. There'll be very serious charges brought against this president. Uh, Number two, I want to make very clear, the warrant that was executed, the warrant that is fortunately, for those of us who love the Constitution, required before you're executed a search of that kind, uh, the warrant actually was so broadly worded. And this is one thing, let me tell you, law school, you're looking for and in order for a judge to sign off on a search warrant and it's because you can't go in and say just anything we can find it's a there has to be a probable cause to execute a search warrant the search warrant used by the fbi in this case actually basically said i'll summarize it for you it said anything you can find any piece of paper donald trump touched since the moment he became president i'll read you the exact words of the warrant all physical documents and records constituting evidence contraband fruits of crime, or other items illegally possessed in violation of federal statutes governing records, possession, the warrant reads were to be seized, records extended to, this is the actual language, any government and or presidential records created between January 20th, 2017, the day he took office, and January 20th, 2021. In other words, they can go after anything related to Trump presidency over the four years in the execution of this warrant. Probably overly broad, And secondly, you likely know the big battle going on right now is that the DOJ will not release the contents of the affidavit in order to get a search warrant, which lists what you're going to search for. You have to have an affidavit. Somebody has to say, hey, here's the reason I think this guy has 
property has something in their possession that should be the subject of a search warrant. The FBI will not, the DOJ will not release the contents of the affidavit that gave rise to the search warrant. And tied to that, and Donald Trump is saying, I want to see it. What is it? And on top of that, Donald Trump ultimately has the right to see who is it who signed off this affidavit. So the affiant, the person who signed the affidavit, also should be something not only Donald Trump knows, but the entire country knows. So this is a, we are an uncharted and just very, very dangerous uh, territory in this, at this time in this issue. Um, next, I want to point out what is being set up right here is actually the rigging of the 2024 election. It is setting up Donald Trump to be unable to run or have hanging over his head some pending indictment. This is the Democrats deciding early on, Trump must go anything to take him down anything. So they will, because I'm telling you folks, this issue related to the archives and what documents Trump had at the, uh, at the, at Mar-a-Lago, this is not, this is a, I mean, this is a first year law student eye rolling level absurdity. The idea that they would be executing a search warrant to get documents that were supposedly belonging to the archives, especially as, as Trump has shown, there's a record of him cooperating with the DOJ, letting them come down to Mar-a-Lago just a few months ago, June. They're down, look at the documents, hey, put a second lock on this door. There's nothing in the documents that warranted what the DOJ is doing. And everybody knows that. What they're trying to do is find a reason to take him down. I'm going to say, I'm not gonna talk much further about the presidential elections today, but tomorrow I will tell you that a guest joining us on the show is Joel Gilbert. He has a new book out called Michelle Obama 2024. He's an investigative reporter. He, he does um, documentaries and he is talking about the idea that Michelle Obama is going to be the Democrats candidate in 2024, which I firmly believe is true. They can't have Biden again. He doesn't, he's sadly unable to handle the job and his mental capacity is too limited. And everyone knows that they can't possibly rely on Kamala Harris as a viable candidate. So he's saying Michelle Obama is going to run. So many, many people on the conservative side say, well, then what do we do? We have to find someone who can beat Michelle Obama. I want a number one, plant the seed now. We'll talk about more with Joel tomorrow. The idea that all of us talk about Michelle Obama as if she is just, you know, if she's in, we're done. We just might as well hang, you know, hang it up, give it up. Completely false. When people start to get to know who she is, she's not going to be as popular as everyone fears. And number two, many, many, many people who had up until last Friday, last August 8th, said, you know what, we just got to kind of let the whole thing go with Trump. We can't have run again. He's too divisive. You know, he's too confrontational. We can't have that again. The American people can't take it. There are so many people now, people I'm extremely involved with politically and who follow everything who said, you know what, before the Mar-a-Lago raid, I was rooting for DeSantis. I thought, let's get DeSantis in as our candidate in 2024, who've now recognized we cannot do that. This is a this is a, the left drawing a line. They are creating a war in America against Donald Trump, and they're not doing it because Donald Trump sent mean tweets or because he's crass or because whoever his dating life, whatever his dating life involved, they are targeting in on Donald Trump because he did for the American people back as far as 2016, 2015, 2016, during his campaign, help the American people understand the depth of corruption in Washington, D.C., the deep state 
snake pit that constitutes Washington, D.C., and he exposed it for the American people. He didn't have enough time in the first term to take care of it. But these people who are now targeting him, which includes a broad swath of people in the federal bureaucracies, DOJ and FBI, they see Donald Trump as a threat to their future. They see him as someone, if he gets back in office, he's going to clean house. And a lot of them will be the ones marching off to uh, federal prison or at least to federal indictment and charges. This could not be a more serious time in America. It is time for everyone to be involved, stay on top of the facts, understand the broad political consequence of a new administration using all of the powers they have at their disposal, the DOJ, the FBI, and other federal agencies going after a former president for doing nothing for doing nothing. The entire January 6th protest, uh, this is not even resonating with the American people. People didn't like the small amount of violence that occurred. They do not like the idea that a that there are now multitudes of Americans being charged. We're gonna talk more about that a little bit later. Multitudes of Americans being charged for very, very minor offenses, getting sent off to prison, very much seeming like a political agenda on the part of the DOJ and the judges involved in the sentencing, many of whom were appointed by Barack Obama, all trying to send the message to America. We're not tolerating Donald Trump running this country. We're going to put this down. And I'm going to tell you, Donald Trump became more popular after the raid last week. And for those serious people who love America, love our Constitution, love the idea of America's freedom, we, the American people, need to be standing up and speaking up and resisting what this and what this Biden administration is doing to Donald Trump, because it's not really to Donald Trump. It is to everything he worked to expose for the American people. It is really an attack on you and me and every other conservative who loves America and does not want to watch our country be taken over by the radical left, which did not even win the election in 2020. And that, my very fine friends, is today's first five. So uh, much more on that, of course, a little later. But I do want to, we have a wonderful guest joining us. He's joined me numerous times on the show, Raymond Ibrahim. Um, he is an author. He's written many books, which I'll talk about in just one moment. Um, but he has a new book out, which uh, we are going to turn to. I'll quick uh, ask um, Ziggy, my happy producer today, if you put us a picture of the book. This is his new book. Raymond Ibrahim's book is called Defenders of the West, The Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam. He can come back to me. Other books that we have that uh, we have actually interviewed Raymond about on this show, uh, Sword and Scimitar, 14 Centuries of War Between the Islam and the West, uh, Crucified Again, Exposing Islam's New War and Christians. What he has done with his unique background is be able to bring to the understanding of the American people what the ideology or thinking is behind many people who engage in jihad or engage in violence in some form on behalf of Islam. His uh, his educational background uh, allows him to be extremely qualified uh, in presenting all this. But his personal background also with his parents who grew up, and he can correct me in a minute, I think it was Egypt. His parents grew up in the Middle East, came to America. He is able to, which I'm always so impressed by, read, write, and speak English, of course, uh, and also Arabic. So many of the texts that he looks at, he studies, these are ancient texts where he can translate them firsthand, not relying on some other scholar's ability to do that, and really try to bring to the understanding of America and the modern world what motivates so much of the violence we see in the Islamic world and the violence brought on by Islamic jihadists around, this, uh, around the world in America today. So let's welcome to the show, Raymond Ibrahim. Hello, Debbie. Very good to be with you. Thanks for having me again. 
Good to see you, sir. Glad you could join me today. It's just great. Um, you know, your new book, Defenders of the West, I, I was telling you before we started, I, I love the way you write. I mean, Sword and Scimitar, okay, we're not home right now. We're in California, but it's one of the books, you know, we just moved in, in Texas. And so I culled out many, many, many books, How to Get Tossed, but not yours. They're so good. I mean, I have a little bookshelf in my office because they're really substantive and very, um, they're, they're very informative. And for many people, as we've talked about before, until 9-11 came along, people kind of maybe studied religion in college and knew Islam was really different from Christianity. But once the 9-11 attack occurred and then more attacks of terror occurred, people began really trying to understand what is it that's motivating these people. Um, and so your books really help people understand the theology of Islam and also, which I've commended you for many, many times, people did not understand that the what we're experiencing now in this world, this this um, expression of violence on behalf of uh, Islam is actually a pattern that began at the time of Islam's founding and continued in waves, in massive waves throughout the world uh, for, for literally thousands of years. And to help people put what's happening today in that context helps us, I think, realize how serious it is. So that was a long introduction, sorry. And I do want to get to your books, but I want to ask you first, there's of course a lot of attention paid uh, to the um, attempted assassination of a, uh, a an Islamic author um, who uh, named Salman, or Salman Rushdie, um, who wrote a book, got a fatwa put out about him uh, because he was essentially insulting uh, the prophet, insulting Islam, and recently in America, he finally, he's been living in hiding for years. He finally came out. He made a speech in New York and was attacked on stage. So that's the, with that introduction, let's go back to you and talk about what is the whole reason Salman Rushdie inflamed the Islamic world? I mean, the, what he wrote that inflamed them, why they put the fatwa out and what a fatwa really is. Sure, Debbie. Yeah, this is a pretty exciting and telling news that people really need to understand the, the background. Um, and it's very much similar to what you were saying about with my, my last book, Sword and Scimitar. This, what happened to Salman Rushdie actually has a very ancient long pattern that begins with Muhammad. And so what happened to Salman Rushdie is he wrote the book, uh, which came out in, the, I think, 1988, The Satanic Verses, which I've read a long time ago. And it's really a novel, very poetic, very abstract it's not the kind of thing, uh, you know, that you'd read and think, uh, you know, has some sort of lurid anti-Muhammad description. But what he did is, you know, he 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 kind of <laughs> poked at one of the many soft spots of Islam. The satanic verses is actually a real thing. Right? And it goes back to the it's a whole story. And it's and it's in the biographies of Muhammad, the oldest, earliest biographies of Muhammad written by Muslims, where somehow he was at first trying to curry the favor of the pagans in Mecca by um, actually paying tribute to their goddesses, okay, who were supposed to be the daughters of Allah. And then somehow, you know, then later on he reneged and wanted to become more monotheistic. And this whole thing is supposed to be captured in the Quran. At any rate, that's a whole different story. The point is, you know, he brought it up in his novel and it obviously offended Muslims, just like any number of things offend Muslims about Muhammad because so much of his life and deeds as recorded are just liable and open to criticism. And that's a whole different story. So that happens. And then the Ayatollah Khomeini you know, of Iran at the time, I think in 1989, issued a fatwa. A fatwa is uh, basically a, a decree by an authoritative Islamic personage, uh, higher up uh, Sheikh or so forth. And the Ayatollah Khomeini is definitely up there, especially for the Shias. He's the highest. And um, 
So he basically called for his assassination, his death. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to see how long this is. It's been almost 35 years. Now, Rushdie actually did live clandestinely for quite some time. And I believe he had, um, you know, UK police protecting him. But it, it seemed to him, apparently, and to others, that as time went by, decades have gone by, surely this is, you know, no one's going to do anything. It's not a big deal. So he started appearing more publicly. And lo and behold, and it just shows you the tenacity of this sort of Islamic thinking, he got attacked. And uh, last I heard, he might be missing an eye. He was on a ventilator, lots of damage and so <laughs> forth. Now, what I find interesting is uh, you look at the mainstream media and they're talking about we're still searching for a motive. I mean, give me a break, a motive. Uh, aside from what I just told you about, you know, the Khomeini and the, and the fatwa to kill him. And as I was saying, if you go back in history, the very first person to issue a command to assassinate someone who is mocking Muhammad was Muhammad himself, actually. And there's two examples. Um, one is a, a Jewish poet. This is all in the time of Muhammad's life. There was a Jewish poet, um, Kab, uh, Kab ibn al-Ashraf is his name who uh, this is at a time when, you know, Muhammad is not supreme and, and what he is, you know, he's competing with various facts and tribes. So this Jewish poet makes some verse mocking him and Muhammad declares around his followers, the Muslims, who will rid me of this man? And one young Muslim says, I'll do it if you allow me to lie to him because I have to pretend that um, I'm, I'm a non-Muslim, I'm not your friend, I'm not your follower, so I can win his good graces, get it in his confidence and then kill him. Muhammad agrees, says you can lie. And, and long story short, this young Muslim goes, befriends uh, Kab, the, the Jewish poet. And before long, once his guard is dropped, he beheads him, brings his head to Muhammad, throws it down to chants of Allahu Akbar, Allah is greater. That's just one example. And there's another one of a woman who was an Arab woman who's also a poet, a poetess. And her, because, you know, in the Arab culture, poetry was a big thing, oral poetry and so forth. And she also made some verse mocking Muhammad. And he said the same thing. Who will rid me of this woman? And a man went there, a Muslim, and she had many children. One was actually uh, a suckling babe at her breast. The man pulled the child away. I guess he's good enough to do that. And then stabbed her in the breast and killed her. And then went to Muhammad and told him. And the man's conscience, and this is recorded, he says, should I feel bad? She had many children. And Muhammad says, killing her is as meaningless as two goats butting their heads. Okay, so the point is, this goes back, as, as so many of the unsavory things of Islam that we see today, that the mainstream media tells us why, we don't know why this happened, we don't get it. It often not only traces to Islamic teaching, but it actually goes directly to Muhammad. That was a great summary. And actually, what I love about what you were just saying was that it goes all the way back to Muhammad himself. It wasn't just later people who... So this is a concept that was is rooted in Islam, that if you insult the prophet or anything about his teachings, you might be liable to a, a, a fatwa, a, a threat of being killed. So back to the Salman Rushdie, did this guy... I don't know. I mean, when people execute on a fatwa, which was issued, whatever, over 20 years ago, isn't that right? Over 20 years ago that this was? No, um, almost 30, almost over 30 years. Over 30 years ago. Do these people expect some uh, financial reward? Do they get, I mean, and what is it, what would motivate you to commit murder in open public where you're going to be caught? Do you think you get some financial reward or do you think, is it just getting to heaven? What is the reason you would do that in modern life? Well, I mean, I should emphasize the, the fatwa thing, which many people focus on, is really secondary. And I say that because all throughout, even today, the, in the modern era, and you don't hear it because you hear about Rushdie because he's in the West, you know, in America, in, in the UK, and so forth, so it makes news. But all throughout the Islamic world, 
especially Christian minorities, but sometimes secular Muslims and so forth, they get attacked and killed or imprisoned at the very least because they might have blasphemed against Muhammad or something like that. And there's no fatwa necessary. In Pakistan, for example, they actually have a whole law. Actually, several Muslim nations have a law that um, penalizes blaspheming Muhammad, saying anything, whether in writing or in speech that goes against Muhammad. You could. You, Pakistan uh, has the death penalty for that. If you're convicted of that, you get the death penalty. And every month, you know, I, because I follow the persecution of Christians throughout the Islamic world, at least one or two or three instances come up of Christians in Pakistan accused. And it's usually by some rival, some business rival, because, you know, minorities in Pakistan know better not to say anything about Muhammad. So they make it up and accuse them. And you're lucky if the police catch you and imprison you in life, because if they don't, you get killed by the mob. Again, no fatwa necessary. One, one example I remember in Pakistan is um, a Muslim, uh, a Christian man and his wife who was pregnant, young, a young couple. The mob burned them alive. And when they wouldn't set on fire, they actually put more kindling on the woman to make sure she burns a lot because they were accused of um, uh, insulting Muhammad. And more recently still, you know, it's not just a Pakistani thing. It's an Islamic thing. You go to Nigeria. And if you recall, it was about three months ago in May, Deborah Emanuel, a young Christian girl, college student, was again accused of saying something against Muhammad, even though if you look at the backstory, she wasn't. It, it came from some Muslim man who was sexually kind of approaching her and she denied him and he made up the story. Before you know it, college students in Nigeria, Muslims, took her, stoned her, and then set her on fire. No fatwa necessary. So my point is, actually, you know, when we think about the fatwa concept, yeah, that obviously incites more violence. But just in general, when Muslims find, you know, what was his name, Theo Van Gogh in, in, in Denmark, yeah. who was stab stabbed, again, no fatwa. Yeah, um, Muslims have a very, you know, Muhammad is a very touchy uh, you know, uh, target for Muslims. And if you say anything against them, they just, because like I said, his life and deeds are so riddled with problems, you know, where, where to start, you know, I'll just give you one quick one. Muhammad, according to canonical hadiths and teaching said that, you know, you know, for a man to be around a woman who's not his relative, because back then, of course, they're very, uh, you know, socially segregated men and women, the woman should breastfeed him, even though he's a man, because then that makes him her son. Okay, and that actually came out as a fatwa in Egypt a few years ago from the highest Islamic institution, Al Azhar, saying that yeah, that is legitimate um, because well, Muhammad said it. So this is this is I think is the biggest the big issue, the blasphemy and everything else connected to Muhammad. Yeah, I mean I can't tell you how valuable these stories are. I mean the you're recounting the teachings and the basic background within Islam, but these things actually occurring. And if you were describing things that happened thousands of years ago, you say, well, people were kind of ignorant then. But these are, you're talking modern day. This is what happens in modern day. So let's turn now to where we are in America. We have a, a Muslim member of Congress, uh, Ilhan Omar, and she's been pushing a bill. Uh, she calls it the U.S. Islamophobia bill. And she's trying to push the idea. This bill actually passed the House in December. And, uh, and it passed shortly after another member of Congress made what uh, Ilhan Omar said was insensitive or insulting remark. But in any case, the bill is essentially urging America and our State Department to take the lead internationally to fight Islamophobia. And recently, there's been talk about this bill being uh, resurrected that didn't get through the Senate, so it hasn't gone anywhere. But what it, you know, and, and this, this Islamophobia term drives me crazy because phobia is an irrational fear but if people behave like you're describing, it's not that irrational. But 
What is the agenda, in your view, of why Ilhan Omar would be pushing this Islamophobia bill in American in our American Congress? It's actually very interrelated to what we were just talking about, this, uh, this concept of blasphemy, speaking against Muhammad and so forth. The fact is, Islam is just a fragile house of cards. And if people have freedom to speak about it, to delve into the Quran and the Hadith and the life of Muhammad and the teachings of the ulama and speak frankly about it, Islam just crumbles. And I see this often. I watch Arabic satellite where various uh, you know, polemics are made against Islam. And again, people want to kill those fellows too. Some of them are ex-Muslims, some are Christians. So the whole point is, you know, is to silence a guy like me. So what I'm saying is going to be called Islamophobia, okay? And uh, the, as if I'm being a hate, I'm, I'm preaching hate towards Islam. No, what I'm trying to do is actually say the truth about a doctrine and a body of teachings and how they manifested throughout history until the present era, okay? But because they know that that sort of truth will, of course, open people's eyes to the reality of Islam, they try to suppress it under the general umbrella of this is hate speech. And we see this in other aspects of life, too, of course. You say anything that goes against the narrative and you're somehow a hate or a racist or whatever, right? So this is how the Islamophobia thing gets coined, and that's why they're doing it. It, it would have a horrific uh, effect, a chilling effect on people's ability to speak about Islam and, of course, to understand about Islam. And more importantly, this Islamophobia thing, just to show you the sheer hypocrisy of this idea, um, the United Nations on, uh, commemorated this last May, May 15th. They named it Islamophobia Day, Combat Islamophobia, and they issued a press release about it and so forth. They chose May 15th because that's when the, the massacre in New Zealand where an Australian man, uh, I forget his name, uh, Brett Trenton or something like that, this Australian man in New Zealand went into two mosques and killed, I think, a total of 51 Muslims, okay? Yeah, that was a bad thing, obviously, and it's it should be condemned, and the world stood up since condemning it. But what I find interesting is that if you look, because as I was saying, I follow the persecution of Christians under Islam, and I documented recently in an article, I showed that in just the last 10 years, something like maybe 15 churches were bombed and attacked by Muslims in a variety of nations, okay, in Egypt, in Nigeria, in Sri Lanka, um, you know, in Syria, in Iraq, okay, even in Europe. And I counted the numbers of people killed. It was all by Muslims screaming Allah Akbar. So my question is, 51 Muslims killed in, in a mosque attack led to a whole Islamophobia day. Where's our, you know, Christian phobia day in regards to this 1,000 Christians being killed by Muslims in a vast array of areas? So there actually is a pattern, whereas I would argue the attack on the church, on the mosques in New Zealand is was an aberration. You don't see that often in Western nations. So it just shows you the hypocrisy. You know, if anything, it, that led to a big, you know, you know, Islamophobia Day, which is which is actually what's given this Ilhan Omar some ammunition because the United Nations did this. While at the same time, when you know, twenty times as many Christians are killed, every report tells us, oh yeah, this is you know, terrorism by people hijacking Islam. This means this isn't about really killing Christians. This is about economics, etc. You know. Uh, the Nigerian church was just uh, bombed um, on Pentecost Sunday. I think it was June 5th. And I think 50 Christians were killed, right? And the Irish president came out and said, this, the real product of this, you know, of course, he didn't mention anything about Islam, much even radicalism. He said it's climate change is what's causing this. But as you can see, when it comes to Muslims, everything, you know, if any little thing happens, then it's the end of the world and everyone's a racist or everyone's an Islamophobe and so forth. Uh, I saw that climate change... Um 
statement and I actually I thought about going down that path. It's so absurd. I don't even want to waste our time on it. It's so absurd. It, it, but back to what we're talking about here. So you have Islam, you have Ilhan Omar, uh, a Muslim member of U.S. Congress, pushing Islamophobia bill. And part of what it seems to be driving at is, it is to affirm that any questioning of Islam is a product of phobia and hatred and unfairness. And it is, if you set that norm internationally, that you're saying that, uh, you know, America really stands up for that, then the next logical step is, well, we've got to turn our sights on ourselves. Or you can, even internationally, the State Department could say, we looked around the world, and it sort of turns out the worst place for Islamophobia is right here at home uh, in America. We have XYZ happening, and pretty soon you have what is connected to Sharia, which is Islamic law, this idea that you can't insult Islam or Muhammad or any teaching of Islam become kind of part of this protection of Islamophobia. So you really, aren't you kind of putting in place Sharia, the, the aspect of, of Islamic law that says you can't insult Islam and you're imposing it on everyone, right? Well, sure. You know, the West, which supposedly celebrates freedom and, and free speech and so forth, especially if it's to denigrate Christianity, then that's art and so forth. But when it comes to Islam, all of a sudden we have, like you're saying, Islam's own blasphemy laws, which are integral to those, the Sharia worldview. The, you know, you're not, it's not just about insulting Muhammad because it's offensive. You're not supposed to be critical and talk about Islam for the very reasons that you're, you're seeing right now, because you start seeing all the holes in this, uh, the, you know, theology and this doctrine, which is sad because, um, and I discuss this in some of my books, but if you, if you go to the European thinkers and the earliest Orientalists, but even in the 17th and 16th century, they all would have been called Islamophobes because they would have said the exact the same thing I'm saying, but it was just understood. They didn't have to, they didn't have, you know, a big brother watching them and telling them you can't say that because you're hurting someone's feelings, you know, the whole society. And that's why, whereas today you have, you know, Pope Francis, who's like a chief defender and apologist for Islam, actually it was the Catholic popes who spearheaded, you know, what we call today Islamophobia, because it was just so, it was truth, it was obvious, it was a reality, and it had to get out there to protect your own civilization. Okay, so I'm going to turn to your books now, um, and then I want to come back to, so what do we do? You had a great article I mentioned before we came on, uh, recently published called Where Has It Gotten Us? A Look at 17 Years of wor Worth of Killing Terror Leaders. I want to just plant that seed and want to come back to that point that it is one way that our leaders in America try to say they are addressing the threat of jihad and saying, well, yeah, look, now we took out so-and-so, and this new person's a jihadist leader. But you're not really undermining the theology of Islam. But coming back to, I want uh, to be sure I give credit for the books you write. I mentioned um, a moment ago the uh, first one, the one that the newest, Defenders of the West, the Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam. And you featured, and I have a bunch of notes from your book, which you featured um, seven or nine uh, leaders throughout history who, in the era, back from as early as Islam began to be aggressive and to spread uh, Islam by force, um, that you had a few people throughout the history who would stand up and, and fight back and resist and say, we're not going to do that. So, um, which is great to celebrate them and tell their stories. Why did you decide to write about them and about these leaders? Yeah, so in, in the book before that, in Sword and Scimitar, I looked at eight decisive battles between Islam and the West. Um, that really were, you know, world-changing and changed the geography and, the, you know, the, the national territory and the religious maps and so forth. In this book, what I did is I looked at what I call eight decisive men, okay? And these were all Christians, of course, because they were from Europe, who fought against Islam. And 
you know, the premise of the book, the thesis is, you know, I compare and contrast the past with today. And I say today the West is militarily, financially, economically, in every way, technologically superior to the Muslim world. And yet it's suffering from it in various ways, you know, whether it's just the off terrorist attack, whether it's what we're seeing now, an attack on free speech, whether it's, you know, in Europe, this mass migration, which is completely changing the face of the continent over there. Um, why, why is the West at its strongest point losing? And, and my answer is because even though in the past, the West and Europe was actually, well, it was actually weaker than the Islamic world at the time. It actually had men who were willing to fight for their countries, for their civilizations, for their faith and for their freedom. And so I, I, I you know, focus in on these eight men in various iterations of warfare in Spain during the Reconquista, trying to reclaim Spanish territory that was conquered in the name of Islam. Of course, the Crusades, uh, because you know people forget, but the Holy Land was actually Christian when the Muslims took it in the seventh century. And right before the Crusades, it was just a horrible jihad going on that led to literally tens of thousands of Christians being killed and thousands of churches being destroyed in the decades before the first Crusade. And that's why it was called for. And then, of course, the most recent iteration the Bal in the Balkans, where you have the Turks um, invading and going as far as to Vienna. Um, so you have all these various, what I call them, defenders in, the, in those um, theaters that I bring up their life, just because I think intrinsically it's very interesting. Any one of their lives, when you read about it, and again, it's from primary sources. I'm not making any of this up. There's about 1,200 endnotes, uh, two mostly primary sources. But when you read them, you, you think to yourself, why hasn't a movie been made about this man's life? And then you understand why, because, well... They don't want to. They don't want to show a Islam being violent and b Christians actually defending themselves. Um, you know, fighting fire with fire and actually tracing it back to just war theory. None of them thought this was anti-Christian. What they were doing, it actually was. It complemented their faith in creating a stable society. Because in these past and present, when you let evil get by, the only ones that get hurt are the weak and disadvantaged and the innocent. And uh, so that's why, in many ways, these crusades, which are now so demonized as well as these other wars in the Balkans and Spain, um, were all about freedom and protecting the innocent and preserving the Christian slash European way of life. That is such a brilliant point. And I, I to jump right off of that, because you're exactly right. I think that um, historically, especially when Islam was being physically aggressive and invading armies and demanding that, you know, you had to have the courage to stand up and somebody or many somebodies had to say, we're going to fight back. We love our civilization. We love our country. We love our faith. We're not going to let you do this. But I would, I'm curious, though, as you turn to what's happening in the world today, you know, in America, we don't have Islamic armies invading. We have people who are adherents to Islam and they form enclaves in various ma major cities and they try to establish Sharia or some version of it. They, they, they segregate themselves but the battle in America is not necessarily, doesn't necessarily need the physical warriors who will fight back. What you need, it's almost a, a deeper uh, and, and more challenging kind of bravery. You need people to say what is true about Islam, to point out, for example, when you have an attack like on Salman Rushdie, you need to have some, someone say, this isn't just a random guy. This isn't just a one-off. This isn't just a crazy guy who is, you know, somehow contorting Islam. This is Islam. You need people to identify the danger of Islam. And it's so hard to do in this era of political correctness where people have been taught you're Islamophobic if you say anything, if you question anything. So it's a, it's a different kind of bravery needed today to prevent 
what is essentially the ongoing Islamic conquest to take over the world right here today in America and around the world, but the fighting is different. The fighting is harder or, or it's more complex. So, so, so what are we supposed to do in America when we can see uh, we have a problem with Islamic immigration to America. We have right now, I mean, there haven't been jihad attacks in the last several years of a major thing in America, but what do we do to stop the spread of Islam when it's not a battle? Well, so I agree with you. And, um, you know, back then it was a physical warfare and that was required. But fast forwarding to today and what you're saying, which I agree with, is basically you have a soft warfare going on or a more subtle, okay, which doesn't, which isn't physical. But I would argue that the men in these books um, and the, the overall culture um, described in the pre-modern era was such that they were they were already mentally prepared. So, for example, the stuff that we're suffering from, uh, being charged of Islamophobia, being called a racist, uh, anything, you know, oh, you should be embracing of different cultures, that didn't work with any of those people, any of them, from the kings to the popes to the peasants, because they understood, because A, they had freedom to speak and understood what Islam was about, and other things, actually. It's not, it's not just Islam, but Islam was the major force that actually formed Europe into what it became because it was pounding on it for centuries and actually swallowed many parts of it. But so they actually understood that if you told them we're going to have a mosque, they'd say, of course not. We're not going to have a mosque because that is just going to breed violence against us because we know what they preach and we know what they preach today. But you can't say that. And you have mosques in the United States and Washington who are habitually being busted with the most radical Al Qaeda ISIS type literature that they're disseminating. OK, so in other words, um, it's not we don't we don't today have to be physically engaged, but we're really become stupid and we need to reclaim at least the common sense that those people in the past had. Uh, and then if you do, you'll never have to fight because you can just kind of nip it in the bud and you won't let it. But today we're just letting it spread and spread and spread. OK, and not just Islam, like I said, all these bad ideas are just allowed are allowed to spread and you can't say anything for political correctness, etc. So ultimately, what I would hope people could get from this book is to just uh, be inspired the bravery and the assertiveness of those people who stood for their faith and their culture and were not going to be shaken about it. And, you know, this is our land. This is how we do it here because this is our country. And you'd be even surprised when you look at the book and the history. They were actually still, um, you know, gracious enough to respect the other and say, you can have your way. But, you know, we don't we're not going to allow polygamy here, for example. We're not going to allow you to stop. So there was a definite, you know, assertiveness that I think the West needs to reclaim without necessarily following any of the militant aspects, because I don't think we're there yet, though. Obviously, if things are left the way they are, we're going to slip into that point. Oh, we're, we're going to get there for sure. Um, I, I, I only have a few more minutes, but I think this topic is so fascinating because I think for many people, is the educational system in America that has lacked, so people don't really feel sure about what they should think, what they should say. Political correctness has kind of taken over the educational institutions. So unless you go in search of truth, in search of understanding, you don't even realize you're, it's too easy uh, to just to uh, castigate anyone who questions Islam or questions anything that occurs or, or will look at a violent incident and say, well, that's an exception. That's not what really happens. It, it takes people curious enough to understand what is that Islam is really the teachings of Islam are motivating the behaviors we don't want. And the other thing that's happening in America, which is a terribly sad thing, it, it infiltrates our society on many um, levels, is that we've lost what the idea of America is. 
we have we don't have enough people who recognize yes america's freedom and our culture our civil society is rooted in judeo-christian values and that we have a culture worth defending we've had the left pummeling on america as a bad country a racist country an evil country for 80 years or more that the communist movement in america has has been very successful in in attacking in a very subtle but really effective way people's belief in america and that causes you as a citizen to be less comfortable or willing to say you know uh i we have something worth here defending which the people you wrote about in your book did recognize they had something worth defending you think there's any fairness to that point yeah absolutely and you know i, I would add to it uh, both about them and us you know one of the the what, what the culture is doing right now and one of the ways it silences people is that a lot of people are at least nominally or culturally christian in america the majority i would say and there's this idea floating about that you know you have to you know love and forgive and turn the other cheek i call it like doormat christianity and you know non-christians love this brand of christianity because it says nothing and allows you to walk all over it and you know it's very passive and it's very quiet but it's not true christianity true christianity is captured in that well-known phrase you know love the sinner but hate the sin Okay, um, and that's what you see in the past, where they, whereas people could forgive on an individual level, they when they saw violence or something evil or undermining their society and their faith and their culture, they fought back, beginning with words and if need be uh, with the sword actually. So I think um, one of the, the most poisonous ills right now is this idea of just, uh, you know, Christians have this idea that they need to always keep turning the other cheek. Jesus himself, ironically, who said turn the other cheek in the one instance that is recorded of him being slapped he didn't turn the other cheek he actually challenged his slapper um and you know said why did you do this what did i do wrong you have to explain yourself same thing you know the a roman centurion came to him and he healed his servant and he praised the centurion but didn't say anything to this even though jesus always told people after he healed them or did them whatever favor to turn from your sin and repent he didn't tell the centurion that even though that man was responsible for killing countless people as a centurion of one of the most brutal militaries, Roman military. So the idea is just war, just militancy on, on behalf and in defense of the faith, I think has been so rooted out and so many elements right now fear it coming back. The Wall Street Journal just two days ago wrote an article attacking the, the Catholic Rosary, saying it's become a symbol of militancy and, uh, you know, of oh the men God. that I described in the book. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there's this fear that people, will, Christians especially, will wake up to their real history their real past, their real doctrine, which is not militant, but it definitely is very assertive and it defends itself. And uh, they just want to keep promoting this door doormat Christianity because it just serves what they want to do, you know, all the evils that they're promoting. Wow, that was a brilliant summary. Uh, Raymond Abraham, we could talk for another hour. I am so grateful for all your insights and your great writing. I want to mention to our listeners again, the book that we're talking about, the newest book by Raymond Abraham. If you can, Ziggy, quick put the picture up it, of the cover. Uh, it is called Defenders of the West, the Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam. Uh, and you can order it on Amazon. And if you're boycotting Amazon, I'm sure you can find it somewhere else. But it's a great book. I would do it. I just have the downloaded version because we're on vacation. But uh, I will get the, the physical version. And I'm grateful because someone like you, Raymond, the unique background you have, your family background, your educational background, enables you to write in a way that is um, persuasive, undisputable, factual. Uh, and so I just really appreciate all you do. And I'm so glad you had time to join us today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, for, thank you very much, Debbie. I appreciate all, all those words. And um, yeah, thanks for having me anytime. Sometime soon again, I hope. Okay, thank you. Thank you. 
Okay, friends, I want to hit two other quick stories. Uh, today is the uh, primary in Wyoming, which uh, it appears that Liz Cheney is going to lose, uh, you know, by almost 30 points. And I want to make two, we're going to hit it again tomorrow. I will happily tell you all about tomorrow, how the, what the outcome was. But I want to hit two quick points about Liz Cheney right now. Liz Cheney is going to lose her primary in Washington because she decided her highest mission in Washington was to undermine Donald Trump at every step of the way. She became so fixated on undermining him that she's lost track of truth and she's lost track of reality. Liz Cheney's recent statements about the 2020 elections, she continues to refer to anyone saying that 2020 elections were stolen, that it was massive election fraud. She continues to refer to that as farcical, absurd, a myth, Donald Trump made it, made it up, you know, and he's, inst he's instilling violence, he's encouraging violence. And, that's, and, and so she can't deal with the reality that the election was stolen, which everyone can see. And then she fixated on January 6th, trying to turn a righteous protest, or as Dinesh D'Souza called it in 2000 Mules, the primal scream of America saying you can't steal this election, and decided that was her, her hill to die on. So bad enough that she cannot comprehend and, and entertain and look at the evidence of elections, the election being stolen. But the additional problem with Liz Cheney and politicians like her is she does not understand the threat the left is posing against America. She does not understand that America is already over the cliff, down in, heading down to a horrible crash because we've had not only elections stolen, but we have radical leftists running this country who are have locked arms with the globalists, locked arm with big government tyranny. They have already, in a variety of ways, in the short 18 plus months that Biden has been president, engaged in the thrashing of American citizens' rights, the mocking and ridicule of the right of Americans for to freedom of speech, to freedom of protest, freedom of assembly. The every policy the Biden administration is doing is what you would do if you're trying to, to destroy America. And Liz Cheney cannot comprehend that. Either Liz Cheney does understand those two things, that the election was stolen and that the Biden team is purposely destroying America. Either she does understand that and she's so evil that all she can think about is making sure she looks good and she remains consistent in her attacks on Trump and her attacks on, on, on the January 6th episode, in which case she's evil and she needs voting out. Or she is so obtuse. I dislike the word stupid, but it's almost hard to think of a better word. If she actually believes what she's saying, if she actually thinks there was no outcome changing election fraud, if she actually thinks that the, the left is just doing their job and rolling along, doing, you know, Democrat policies, does not see the threat to America posed by today's left. If she actually doesn't see it. She's not smart enough to be dog catcher. She's not smart enough to hold any job, any elected job in America. And what I just said is true of every other politician you look at voting for. If they can't see what happened or they do see it and they don't care, they have no business in our country. And she also cannot see the profound corruption of the FBI, profound corruption that is leading us to where we are today uh, with the FBI executing a raid of Mar-a-Lago um, because they can, because they have decided they, the DOJ, the FBI, the entire cabal of leftists who've taken over this country, DOJ, FBI, the Biden administration, 
all locked arms against Donald Trump, and he's their enemy, not because he sends mean tweets, and not because of his dating life or his language he chooses to use. He is their enemy because he will expose them, and they know it. They are at a point of anything it takes to take Trump out is okay with the left. The abandonment of America's principles and values and rule of law all cast to the wind because these leftists want power more than anything else. They want to stay in power and they do not want to face the consequences that will occur if Donald Trump comes back to the presidency in 2024. There's much more to talk about in this subject, but I want to do quickly a touch on my last topic for today, and we'll have to come back to that next week, too. We only have a few minutes left today. So um, first of all, for our radio listeners, if you didn't know, you're listening to America Can We Talk. We have a website, americacanwetalk.org, at americacanwetalk.org. You can always go to the website, listen to past interviews, listen to past shows, uh, read our blog posts, read our Why It Matters features do check it out, especially if you're listening on audio and you haven't ever come to the website. I really urge you to go there. You can also watch the show live every day there. But the last topic I want to hit very briefly today, I called it uh, Pfizer Vax Ineffective in Killing Babies. I want to just uh, mention, you know, we're at a phase in America. We, we've had many, many, many shows with COVID uh, as a topic, the effective treatments, the vaccines. So we had wonderful doctors joining us. I want to hit some points about COVID, and I really urge you to do this reading yourself. Do this reading yourself about what I'm about to tell you. So as a small point, of course, you all have heard the story that quadruple vaxxed the Pfizer CEO named Albert Bourla. Albert Bourla, the Pfizer CEO, quadruple vaxxed. He's, been, he's gotten four vaccines against COVID, tests positive for COVID, and puts out, don't worry, after all, I'm, I'm taking another Pfizer treatment, uh, Paxlovid. And so he's not the only one, of course, many other high-level officials who have sworn by the vaxes and continue to swear by the vaxes get COVID. For those of you above a certain age, I hope it's like above 20, you recognize that for most of history, vaccine meant once you got the vaccine, you didn't get the disease. That's why the polio vaccine was such a huge thing. And the vaccines for many, many other diseases, everyone who had vaccine menses, you won't get the disease. This is the point of the vaccine. You become immune to that disease. You, you're immune to it. This COVID vaccine, we've allowed the, the changing of definitions. So we don't anymore think about the idea that these are vaccines that aren't preventing the disease. That in fact, the majority of cases of people getting COVID now are with people who are vaccinated. And, and it is not preventing sickness, it's not preventing transmission, it's not preventing death. And yet we continue to humor the COVID vaccine, Pfizer especially, the particular, I shouldn't say they're the only ones, one of the horrible uh, pharmaceutical companies in this country continuing to push their vaccines despite the fact that people can see they aren't working. But the other thing I want to urge you to dive into, and I will have to do more about this on another show, but Naomi Wolf who many of you know of. She uh, used to be actually a, a, on the left, a, a Democrat advisor, I think it was to Clinton. Naomi Wolf has been a strident and brilliant advocate for understanding and diving into the evidence of how deeply dangerous and violent the COVID and, and, and deadly the COVID vaccines are. So she has a Substack account. I think it's, it's just called NaomiWolf.substack. But 
on Substack, you just have to, in fact, I linked on our website to americacanwetalk.org, I linked to just two of her pieces on her Substack. I urge you to go to our website, americacanwetalk.org, on the homepage under shows, drop down list of links. I linked to these two articles written by Naomi Wolf on her Substack. I just want to share some data with you. What she did after Pfizer, who originally had tried to argue to the court that they did not have to release any data any data about all of their efforts on the vaccines. Pfizer tried to say they had to withhold and keep secret for 57 years the evidence they had, the data they gathered, and testing on the safety and the efficacy of their of their COVID vaccines. And the court said, no, actually, you're freaking crazy. You got to release your data. You got to let people see what you're studying, what you found out in your own studies. So Pfizer was finally reported or forced to release um, 55,000 internal Pfizer documents, 55,000 internal Pfizer documents that the F not only did Pfizer try to hide them, the FDA, our taxpayer funded FDA, went along with Pfizer and said, oh, yeah, yeah, they shouldn't have to show this. And so the data was released and the uh, Dr. Naomi Wolf hired people, legions of experts to dive in and study what Pfizer had finally produced. Let me just tell you a few little tidbits. I'll have to come back to it more in, in another show. Here are the, the, the as she says, the lies are stunning. For example, she says, um, they, they hire by the way, 3,000 medical and scientific experts, 18 months worth of sudden death, slow death, encephalitis, stroke, heart attacks, pericarditis, myocarditis, Jelaine uh, Bayer, Bell's palsy, multiple sclerosis, blood clots, lung clots, leg clots, blue-green breast milk, spontaneous abortions, stillbirths, neonatal seizures. This is out of Pfizer's documents. This is Pfizer finally acknowledging, yeah, look what happened when we let people take these vaccines and look what happened especially to pregnant women. So she has the doubling as one example, doubling of neonatal deaths in the in country after country, comparing women who are pregnant who didn't get the vaccine and women who are pregnant who did get the vaccine. The babies were dying, doubling of neonatal deaths in country after country, the rise in 34% above normal in stillbirths, 34% higher than normal in stillbirths, meaning baby, sadly born, already deceased, and spontaneous abortions for vaccinated versus unvaccinated mothers. She has data point, she has data point after data point after data point after data point. I mean, these documents are enough all by yourself to, for, to cause any sane person to say, what are we doing still supporting these, what are we doing still supporting these these vaccines and allowing Pfizer, who's pushing them out now for babies, for babies, for young children. This is a company whose, whose records are sufficient to cause any sane person to stand up and say, all vaccinations must be stopped. This is the data are clear that what should be happening is that there should be a, a, an uprising. There should be the government saying all these vaccinations stop. We're going to look into Pfizer. They're probably criminally liable for what they kept pushing on America. Naomi Wolf is making it available. I can't urge you strongly enough, even if you had the vaccine, even if your whole family's vaccinated, read the data. Understand, she has no agenda. 
She's not making millions saying this. She's trying to help the American people understand the data that Pfizer tried to hide from you. More on this. I'm out of time today in the show, except to do our Why It Matters to You, which I do at the close of every show. I tell our listeners why we talked about today matters to you. But I will come back. I will come back to Naomi Wolf next week. So Mar-a-Lago raid, what is next? Political science point to indictment of Trump following January 6th model of allegations. But the DOJ and the attorney general are recklessly misreading the mood and the intelligence of the American people. Raid on Mar-a-Lago, transparently political, warrant demand for every document for Trump's entire four-year term, transparently political. DOJ refusal to release affidavits supporting the warrant, transparently political. Magistrate Reinhardt, defense counsel, Jeffrey Epstein's affiliates. I mean, that's this is a Epstein guy, transparently political, all of which means the indictment against Trump of Trump, transparently political. Full unredacted disclosure of the affidavit. The court hearing is on this Thursday, could blow everything wide open. And they need also to force a release of the name who signed the affidavit, who provided the affidavit, could blow everything wide open, even stall or prevent the indictment. If too many holes, misrepresentations, omissions, and other fraud by the DOJ, indictment of Trump will not be graciously accepted by the American people. Now, Liz Cheney's impending defeat and future. If you don't recognize or understand the massive nationwide evidence of 2020 election fraud and the ongoing left-wing agenda to take down America that arose from that stolen election, you are not qualified to serve in any elected office in the U.S. If you do understand massive 2020 election fraud and the ongoing left-wing American uh, destroy American agenda, but you really believe that Donald Trump is the greatest threat facing America, you are not qualified to serve in any elected office in the U.S. Either way, Liz Cheney is not qualified to serve in any elected office in the USA, and Wyoming's GOP primary voters are going to deliver that message today. And the Pfizer vax ineffective and killing babies, fully vaccinated, boosted Pfizer CEO diagnosed with COVID, fully vaccinated, boosted Secretary of Defense Austin, diagnosed with COVID, diagnosed with COVID for the second time. Obviously, the COVID injections are not vaccines. Obviously, the COVID injections are not effective. Dr. Naomi Wolf and Steve Kirsch, high visibility liberal Democrats are now sounding the alarm. Pfizer's clinical trial data, which Pfizer wanted to keep from the public for 75 years, obviously show that COVID injections are not safe as compared to historical standards of safety. Clinical date, trial data on menstrual interference, so that was a whole other issue, menstrual interference. Clinical trial data on menstrual interference and miscarriages and stillbirths are very alarming. Yet the Biden administration, CDC, FDA, keep pushing the vaccines. What in the world are they doing? The vaccine backlash is growing. Reckoning may be coming. Trust in public health institutions will take decades to rebuild. And that my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so very much for tuning in every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. America Can We Talk? truth about America. Can you hear-